welcome to another episode from our I Decided series. This series is dedicated to some people I know, some friends I cherish, and some clients that I've had the privilege of working with over my coaching life. All these people have one thing in common. They had an I Decided moment. A time in their life where they decided to plan a life they want to live in, or create a business on purpose. Today I have the privilege of sharing a conversation with Ryan Stig. Well, welcome, Ryan, and thanks for taking the time out of uh, your busy life to be able to have a, a conversation with us in this I Decided series. No, it's, thank you for having me. It's, yeah. it's been uh, interesting to watch your life as it's unfolded, and there's a slight connection there I have with, with your father-in-law, where we've been mates for a very, very long time. Yes, yes, friendly neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's been an opportunity for mostly me to be able to watch your life through his eyes. Okay. And yeah. it's a beautiful journey to take with him as a good mate to yeah. to know how proud he is of you and the, and the way you've acted and responded to some, some pretty heavy challenges of life around the professional sporting career that you wanted to pursue and yeah. and some twists and turns that happened re- regarding health and yeah, and definitely. other issues. So, yeah. so where I'd like to begin now is, is just to start with the, the Ryan Stig story yep. and where you began and Okay. And how some interest grew and where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So originally I was born on the north coast of Wales. Lived in a place called Nambuck Heads. But there's no... Beautiful um, place. Yeah, lovely <laughs> place. Um, still get there a little bit. I'd like to get there a lot more. Still got family there. But there's no hospital in Nambuck Heads. So I was born in a little town right next to it called Maxwell. Then lived there till I was sort of eight or nine. Then we moved down to Newcastle. There was sort of a bit of an economic downturn that way. So it forced mum and dad down here and then started to go to school at Belmont Christian. And then um, we moved to Maitland and lived there till I was about 15. Okay. Played a lot of junior sport there and sort of started to get roots in and stuff with friends and whatever else. And then when was it? It was about... I was 15, and I got a sports scholarship to go to St. Philip's Christian College. Okay. Um, I was going to Maitland Christian at the time. Oh, yeah? And then, yeah, moved down to St. Philip's. At, at that point in time, I was starting to play junior reps for the Knights, came down to St. Philip's, played played sport there, obviously, and still got a lot of friends and, um, uh, I suppose, a connection with the school, and, yeah, just continued to progress through sporting-wise, and sort of made it in to the NRL um, sort of squad and team for a few years there when I was young. So how old were you when you first joined the junior squads for NRL? I think I was, I was training with the full-time squad uh, by about 18. Okay. And then, yeah, I, I was there for a couple of years. I was playing really good in the junior grades. And then, well, I thought I was playing okay. And then I, I probably maybe got a little bit ahead of myself and thought I should have been playing when when I needed to mature a bit more. And I ended up having to go to um, North Queensland okay. spend a year up there, and that was really good for me. I lived away from home. Yeah, played for um, a team called the Northern Pride. They're in the Queensland Cup. Oh yes. Yeah, and we won. We won the Queensland Cup. I, I spent a bit of time training with the Cowboys, and then yeah, the next year I came back to Newcastle and was able to um, play here in front of all my friends and family. And so you're a number seven. Yeah, six or seven. Um, yeah. The way things um, sort of are structured now is not a lot of difference. Yeah. Depending on 
sort of how you play, but yeah, yeah, I don't mind either, but I, I did like to be kind of the dominant half, I suppose, you know, I really liked to um, control where the team was heading and stuff, mm-hmm. so that probably traditionally a little bit more number seven. So so tell me about the, the transition that you took on to move into playing for Newcastle Knights. From the beginning, really. From the, the beginning. The, um, the journey with the Knights. I was... When I was younger, I played a lot of cricket as well, and I played a, a fair bit of rep cricket. The Harold Matthews is the under-16s. I made the Harold Matthews team, I think, when I was 13 or 14, so I was a year younger. And I was still playing cricket at the time. Um, it was kind of, what do I do? Cricket, cricket or footy? <laughs> yeah, I played some junior, like, New South Wales sides and stuff with some really good cricketers who were still going around there. It was, yeah, it was kind of... What do I what do I do? But I made that Knights junior squad, and I was like, "Oh, this is it! <laughs> this is it!" Um, it was just kind of the first opportunity, and yeah, I just I pursued that, trained really hard, and then made made the sides throughout the junior ranks, and just mm-hmm. worked my way through. And I was lucky enough to play Australian schoolboys okay. uh, at the end of school, which is a really good kind of. It's a good feeder, isn't door it? Door opener, yeah, yeah. It's a really good door opener. Most guys that play Australian schoolboys go on to play NRL. So I was able to make that side, and that kind of then pushed me in. I had a, um, some really good years in the Toyota Cup. Well, yes. Probably my first year was a bit better. Who was co- uh, Trent Robinson was the coach, who's now gone on to great, really good things. Yeah. And he was such a great mentor and really smart guy. And, um, had Rowan Smith as well, who's now the coach of Leeds. Um, yeah, turned them around really well this year. So um, yeah, had some good mentors through the twenties, and then um, I was it was just we didn't have the best year in the second year under twenty. So I, um, the Knights just didn't keep me on, and they they had some really good halves. They still had Jared Mullen, Luke Walsh, and these kind of guys. It was probably good for me then. Yeah, then I went away and um, went to North Queensland, spent a bit of time with the Cowboys just for one year, and then. Um, so what did you learn in that space from? What did I learn? Who was the coach at the Cowboys at that stage? Uh, Neil Henry. Um, I, John Thurston was there as well. The year before, I had an offer to go to the Cowboys, um, like a really good offer, that I asked the Knights, could I go? And they squashed it. Okay. So I went up there and I thought I might be able to play in North Queensland. But I just didn't eventuate and played played with the um, feeder team. I think I was able to play, from a life perspective, it was really good. It was, it was sort of my first um, chance to fend for myself a little bit. I think that just grounds out in all areas, you know, forces yeah. you to, yeah, you just got to um, think more and think it, it's an expansion process, I suppose, as a young guy. That I think it helps us all and that's a bit of a transition process. But I, so I think that was good for me from mm. a life perspective. But well, so some one-to-one mentoring from the first graders? Yeah, definitely. Not not formalised, do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But there's always that sort of lucky to come through in a time where there was... I think people would look at it as a culture that isn't healthy but not a hierarchy hierarchy is not the word but a a culture and a, and a team environment where there are guys who are older sort of drive the ship a little bit and set expectation and mm-hmm. set standards you know what i mean that's really really healthy and really good for some young guys i was lucky the halfback i went up i played um five eight with the prop northern pride and they had a guy named um chris shepherd who played 
over 100 NRL games for St. George and mm-hmm. um, North Queensland. And he was, um, he was towards the end of his career. I think that was his last season. But he was a really good mentor just from just watching him. Mm. You know, he was, um, yeah, he was getting to the end of his career. He probably didn't have the speed he used to and all that kind of stuff. But just the way he steered the team and controlled the team and controlled the tempo of the game and um, mm. with his kicking game and stuff like that was a really good lesson for me as a young guy who's probably just didn't have that maturity on the field. So um, that was, I think that was a really good lesson from a football perspective that I learned in North Queensland. The coach, the assistant coach, or the head coach of the Northern Pride had become the assistant coach at the Newcastle Knights the year that I went up there. So he, he originally signed me to go up to play for the Pride. Then after I signed, he signed with the Knights to be the assistant coach. So um, the year later... Yeah, he sort of helped get me back. And Rick Stone was there as well at the time. He sort of had a bit to do with him since I was a young guy. My dad played footy with him with the family connection there. So yep. um, I was just a good fit. And then I moved back to Newcastle and then played that next year. Yeah, there's a bit of a from the beginning. So how did you end up with the, the number seven jersey for the Knights? I started the year in reserve grade and then... I remember um, that. Yeah, and... I suppose played okay and then just forced my way in. There was a couple of injuries. When I got yeah, when I got the the goal, I just sort of I felt like I was definitely prepared. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I feel like there's some young guys that get a go before they're ready. I didn't think that was the case. I felt like I felt like I could have probably played when I was still here in the under twenties and then the year full year in the Queensland Cup playing against other men mm. just really matured me and I, I was I'd had a really good pre-season and I was fit and I just felt really ready. You know, I had a lot of confidence at that point. So I just, yeah, when I got to go, I didn't really want to let the jersey go. So, yeah, I played every game for the rest of that year. So how many how many uh, NRL first grade games did you play in total? I think it was only about 13 from my debut the rest of the season and then I got sick at the end of that season. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of surgery and stuff. So, but yeah, that was and it was yeah really obviously a buzz. I think growing up in the region to yep. be able to debut in Newcastle and play in front of all your friends and family. I think the football manager Warren Smiles nearly fell over when I asked him how many tickets I needed for the game. You know, because we had so many so many friends and family wanting to come along. <laughs> yeah, it was just yeah, it was good. I mean, it was good, good for time. Newcastle at the time too. I know you became a, a bit of a local boy hero. They they really loved you, and I think having uh, some some English some English TV shows that that uh, had oh, the yeah, mystery the of the stick, stick yeah. uh, certainly helped um, yeah. in in bringing some publicity to to our Newcastle stigs. No, there was a bit. There was a bit of that, which was all good fun. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's all. Yeah, it it's was all a, great. It was a great time and an exciting time. So. Yeah. And and from memory too, the team did turn around a little bit too. It it started to get a little bit of yeah uh, cohesion a as a team, and it was some, some good runs on the board there. Yeah, we had a good end to that year. Um, we were sort of sitting maybe a bit outside the eight, and then we worked our way back into the into the um, semi-finals. We played Melbourne in Melbourne, which is always oh, hard and tough gig. Yeah, really hard. But I I felt like in that first half, I remember I threw a ball. 
um, to maybe our second row of centre, and he spilled it. But if he caught and passed, would probably score. Or and but um, he spilled it, and the storm winger accepted it and scored. So that, I just feel like that moment we were behind, like could have been six nil to us, but it was six nil to them. But that's you know the high level sport; you got to execute, but. And I think the score ended up like eight in ten or something, you know. So yeah. it was it was pretty close from from then on. You never know, but I thought I thought we held our gloves up okay and hard. But I think Melbourne, who was that? Two thousand eleven? Did they win the comp? No, St George did. Yeah, so that they had a very good team, obviously. I'd get into play against guys like um, Cameron Smith, and Billy Slater, and, mm. um, Cooper, and stuff like that. It was was just great as a young guy. You know? What do you think sets them apart? All those those, guys. those those three. Well, they've got a lot of um, natural ability, obviously, but um, their professionalism, the way they've um, squeezed the lemon, the way they think, the way they think about the game. Mm. Um, from all reports, they have their their motivation is internal. It's mm. not. It doesn't come from an excellence that they want to achieve you know mm. those those guys and they drove the team so mm. um and cameron smith obviously think um is one of the smarter players to ever play the game um yeah just i think the way they they had great ability they worked together well and they they thought about the game really mm. well and yeah they they drove each other get that team to achieve some pretty special things yeah getting to play against those guys was great i remember um adam dougal said to me he said because i defended with him in that game he said before we played he said we can't miss the jump ever like so we need to get back and show that we're gonna we're ready to move up and our line speed needs to be good because he said if if there's ever a time where he said i've seen it happen previously where if you're not on side or you're late getting back smith will be straight down at you mm. So it was a real, um, we were really intentional about um, making sure we were ready to move up in that opportunity. Yeah, in, in those cases, you're not you're not in the play, you're in the way because you can't do anything. Yeah, so <laughs> getting back fast and then getting off the line yeah. and stuff so that Smith couldn't, couldn't send the anomalies down the short side next to yeah. And I, I think I could, probably there was maybe one or two times where I was late getting back or he was late getting back and Smith was at us every time. And I think... If you compound that level of detail across 26 rounds, across season after season after season, just taking that right option all the time from the guy that touches the ball first, you know, that, that will really compound some because yeah. then you get a quick play of the ball and then you play fast. And then it amplifies, doesn't it? Yeah, it just, mm. it's just like that um, mm. compounding effect. So um, that was one thing that I think that stood out for me in that game. I have a grandson who plays hockey and uh, I said to him, one of the key things in playing the game is to have your brain in the game and have the game in your brain. And both aspects of that, to be thinking ahead of what other people are thinking. You know, he's only 10 now and he's playing under 14s and he looks tiny compared to all the other boys, but he's thinking ahead all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's the key in, in in any sport and Cameron Smith just exemplifies that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those three guys are brilliant, but they had so many other good players yeah. as well. And, yeah. and I think um, Bellamy um, just drives a culture of excellence, mm. and mm. they just keep producing regardless. Yeah. You know, so you look at the players they got now. So. Who was who was your key mentor at the Knights that that really helped shape you? Um, I had a 
few good ones over the years. I think um, Trent Robinson was excellent um, when I was, yeah, just probably in that 18, 19 period. Um, I learned a lot from him. There was, but I think probably um, Rick Stubbins, probably he, he was the one that gave me my first grade jersey and um, just knowing me from when I was a little kid and yep. having that connection. And even when I went back to playing a few years ago, I had a game of golf with him and asked him a few questions. And, mm. um, so I think probably him, I think he was probably some of the greatest influence on me in my time there. Who was a player that you played with that you admired the most? Oh, it's hard to put it on one person. Or um, even several. Yeah. Um, well, from a, from a young kid, um, I think uh, from a you know a playing perspective, Andrew Jones was phenomenal. I didn't get to play with him. Um, but guys I got to play with, Kurt, Kurt Gidley was uh, exceptional. Just his effort and effort and his ability to put put his body in the line and play tough. He just really led from the front. Mm-hmm. I um, really enjoyed um, playing under him. Isaac de Goyce was really, really, um, really tough guy and really enjoyed. We were close good mates with Isaac, so got a lot of respect for him. Another guy, I think, James McManus, he, he's had some troubles since retiring, but he took me under his wing a little bit when I was um, quite young. When I came into the um, NRL squad, I had some back problems and he dealt with it. So we were in rehab together. Okay. So he, I suppose, looked after me a little bit and <laughs> encouraged me, you know, because he'd been through it. And, uh, and as a young guy, I think you appreciate that. Yeah. But yeah, playing with him, like, I really enjoyed. Um, we would usually defend on the same edge together. So, mm. And he was just always really sound with his decision making defensively the way he carried he always put his body in the line so just off the top of my head maybe those three to be honest I've got a lot of respect for most guys that I've played with not all rugby league's not a not long balls you know no (laughs) (laughs) they do put their body on the line (laughs) yeah guys put their body on the line oh it's phenomenal yeah Yeah, definitely uh... yeah I think um, those um, those guys yeah sure just several games last year, just watching them, I was thinking, how do they just keep backing up and backing up and backing up? It's yeah, it's almost insane. Well, yeah, you kind of get you. The preseason is pretty difficult yeah. once you end up into a, um, in shape to to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's still it's still brutal. So. Mm. We get to the end of the year. Some health issues start to appear. Yeah. Tell me about the next part of the the journey there. Um, so I re-signed with the Knights for a couple of years and then it was a really exciting time for the club. It was when Tinkler took over and Bennett was um, signed to come and coach. So it was a really exciting time and I um, I had to get a f- couple of surgeries after that off-season. I got the surgeries done and then I was rehabbing. I was training, back at training during pre-season. But I just noticed I was flat. Like I was really, I was coming home and sleeping a lot. I was, I just didn't, at training usually I would, I would be doing as many extras as I could, ticking every box, you know, but I just felt so tired, I just couldn't wait to get home and have a nap, you know, and in hindsight, it wasn't normal, but um, at the time I was just, yeah, I was pushing the envelope and I was doing everything to get get better I think. and you more thought it was just exhaustion from the high training regime yeah or? and as, as an athlete you kind of you learn to not listen to your body 
at times you, you get your threshold kind of increases to the point where you can just ignore stuff and I think at times that's helpful in my case it wasn't I probably just didn't listen to the signals and that as much and then yeah I just noticed uh, blurry vision during a game actually during a my first, it was like round four or five, coming back from injury in reserve grade, I just noticed blurry vision. And then it was still there at training the next week. And then I left one day to go and get it checked out. And that was the last time I went back to training. That was it. Yeah, just kind of, originally it sort of appeared to be what, what they were saying. It was like a blood clot in the eye, but it was kind of the tip of the iceberg. And as things progressed, it got a lot worse and I got a lot sicker so yeah that was kind of how it started okay um, and then as as time went on a lot more things started to appear brain lesions and I started to get a lot worse neurologically and yeah it was just it was really hard to reconcile as a young guy like yeah well you pursue it you've reached this pinnacle of where yeah, you've always wanted to be yeah and I, I was there for probably six months and then sign a new contract and yeah. as you do and, and you work so hard for it so for so long and at the time it was just really hard to work out what was going on yeah. because a lot of doctors were kind of saying we don't really know what's happening here you've got you've got an eye problem but um there's obviously more going on and a lot of the tests were sort of coming back negative and stuff which made it really difficult for me because i was like well i feel like horrible you know i feel horrible here there's no way i can you know i was really struggling to leave the house i was really struggling to go into like busy environments because of the lesions and stuff going on in my brain and um but tests were coming back negative and i had this eye problem and it was just as a young guy it was just a bit mm. hard because then you had the club go, they, they were not pretty good but it was kind of like well what's the story what yeah like what can we do with you? Yeah, <laughs> what can we do? And it, yeah. as as a footballer, ultimately you are a commodity yes. to a degree. Yeah. So it kind of gets to that point as well. So, but yeah, as things went on, I just kind of exhausted all the probably traditional medical routes. Things just weren't coming back. All the doctors I seen were great. They'd done their best and they tried really hard to find out what was going on. But then I just sort of had to start looking for, yeah, some different... I just had to dig, you know, and work out what was going Trying on. to find different answers. Yeah, just trying yeah. to find answers. It wasn't until I started looking at treating it from a Lyme syndrome, Lyme disease sort of perspective that I started to improve. And that okay. was a bit of a journey in itself. So yeah. that was kind of, I remember the first um, doctor I seen that um, sort of said, yeah, you've probably got this. He said, it's good you've found out, but because you've had it for a little while now, it's it's not it's not an easy fix so that was it was like happy inside you know so and by that time it was like three years later so it had been three years of sort of running in circles so, so is it something that if it's treated more early it has less impact or is it so, is it going to have the same amount of impact definitely yeah yeah you catch it earlier for right. sure it's got less time to run rampant in your body yeah okay but yeah i think yeah, if I could have got to it earlier, and that is, that is probably something I'm still processing, to be honest. If I could have got to it earlier, yeah, it would have negated a large amount of this. Um, so that really stings, to be honest. Okay, you know, like um, it is what it is, and I'm lucky that I was able to find out what was going on eventually. Yeah, know, okay. Because it, 
there's different ways to look at it. Like. So what prevented that early diagnosis? Well, was I just it? I think I think some of the testing measures, the way they were doing them here in Australia, just they didn't they didn't pick it up right. basically, and there are other ways of picking it up through different different types of tests. So I got to eventually, but I think maybe just missed it a little bit in right. the start. Then it was once I sort of knew what was going on, accessing the right treatment, which yeah. largely isn't offered here in Australia as well. So kind of opened that a can of worms, you know, like how we sort of know what's going on, but we've got to, got to fix it as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the diagnosis is at the beginning, not the not the end. <laughs> yeah, it's so. like, you know, you need answers. Like yeah. you, need to, you need to find out a solution. So that was sort of the next step then, I suppose, was looking at solutions. How did you deal with the discouragement and disappointment being a young man, newly married, exciting kind of career ahead? How did you how did you personally work through that whole Yeah. Oh, my life is over yeah. this professional career's over. What what was going on in the inside? Well, I think I actually looked at it through the lens that my career wasn't over. Okay. I still had hope that I could get get back to that level at I was only 24, 25. I thought, if I can get better in the next couple of years, I'm 26, I can still play yeah. for another eight years or something. I use that carrot as okay. motivation, to be honest. I have the faith, so I definitely think that helped me a lot, just processing things. We don't live in a perfect world, you know, stuff happens. But it was still very difficult, still really difficult. And when, as an athlete, you work really hard to get to that level. Yeah, to a and, pinnacle level. Yeah, and I sort of just achieved that and then um, mm. to get it for it to fall apart was um, mm. really, really hard. And like, still, it's still really hard, to be honest, you know, mm. um, the what ifs and stuff like that. I still have to deal with them every day. But it, I suppose, yeah, my faith helped. I, I still had hope that I would get back and, uh, and I was looking through those lens. I think it's only recently that I've started, I suppose, grieving or processing at at, a, at another level because for so long I view, I shoot all the solutions and all the hard treatment and stuff through the lens of I'll get back there. You know yeah. what I mean? Where now I'm like, obviously I'm not getting back there. But for a long time, that kind of propelled me to do a lot of this hard stuff. I was I sort of had that lens. Yeah, it's only sort of been recently. It's like, oh, yeah, that's not happening. And I don't know whether it was like a survival mechanism for me in that time, but I think that's the way I approached it. I think that has positives and negatives because it allowed me to probably do some really hard things that maybe some people couldn't do. Mm. But at the same time, there's still a grieving process on this side of things. But I'd yeah. rather be doing healthier now and having done those things than not have done them and not you know what I mean so yeah I'd rather process things now and grieve a little bit now yeah it's it's interesting when people are dealing with sickness as compared to injury yeah like injury is this moment of time that's like a pinnacle where an injury can take someone out of a sport yeah. and it seems explainable yes it's got this point you go back to but but illness or sickness is is progressive so it just gradually steals a little bit more of your life away and then steals a little bit more and steals a little bit more until it yeah. takes away. And you think, well, why is this happening to me? It's not... Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's 
It's true, yeah. And Adidas just crept, crept in, crept in, crept in, and then the next minute, six years later, and they're still, yeah, still struggling, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Injuries, I've dealt with plenty of them. This was very different. This was like career done. Obviously, really hard to take, and and yeah, to be honest, like I'm still, still work through it. I'm still sort of praying through it and working through it. Mm. But I'm, like, I think that's just been real. Like, I think. If, if I was to sit here and be like, oh, no, it's fine, you know, everything mm. like, everything is fine and, and I have so many great things in my life, but that still stings, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, it's okay to do that. I think yeah. I feel like in life we don't, we kind of, like, block it out or don't, I think, an accurate way to, or, a, or, a, or a positive way to deal with grief is you still got to, like, acknowledge it, acknowledge what happened, so... Yeah. I have so many great things in my life and it's it's not the end of the world but it's still something that I would have liked not to have to deal with yeah. but then on the flip side of it you've got well I learned so much through it came out the other side probably better for it in some ways so there's always that sort of side of things as well well, well there is a wisdom that's developed through overcoming uh, I'm 100% sure nobody lives their life backwards we all live our life forward, so yeah. it's we, there is not a whole lot we can change from our past. Mm. Uh, really, every every moment, every second is gone, and and it, it has gone for good. Mm. Reinventing your life is is one of the one of the keys to where we find happiness and mm. where we find a positive attitude is an absolute godsend for us to then recreate life yeah. and recreate. I share with a lot of my clients that. Our lives are often defined by our best and worst moments in our own mind. And, and our best moments, our trophy moments can be that, that pinnacle point. Mm. And then people come off the back of that pinnacle and, and judge themselves hardly. I'll never be able to get back there again. I'll never yeah. be able to do that again. I'll never be able to reach that again. And, and then they can go into some despair in their life. And there's other people who have a, their worst moment. Mm. And, and then they feel like that defined them. So their worst moment then now has control over them for the rest of their life, where it was just simply a dumb decision, a bad mistake, yeah. a, an anomaly, a, you know, a situation where they where they faced some type of trial or some type of test, and they feel like they failed it. But then they feel now oh, I've got to live with that for the rest of my life. And and whether it's our best or worst moment, defining moments are defining, and then they really set up what happens after. Yeah. Uh, and it's it there's truth in it, but there's also where people get captive in that. Mm. And then when they're captive, they develop coping mechanisms and they develop a whole life around coping mechanisms. And it's, mm. it's really sad. Yeah. So, tell me what was involved in the in the treatment around Lyme's and, and where did it take you around the world and what did you discover? So initially, I actually went to a... I'd been, I'd been getting treatment here and I could sort, sort of only access a certain... To a certain degree, which I just didn't think was going to get me there. I was, because I was going through this treatment of like heavy antibiotics and yeah, mainly heavy antibiotics, a couple of other things, but it was, I was throwing the kitchen sink at it and I was just getting nowhere. If, if not, I was going backwards. Right. And so I was just like, in that moment, I'm like, okay, this isn't working. You know, like I need to find a solution. So I talked to a few people that have, that have had some wins with it yeah initially i went to a clinic in mexico which was um it was really good i think it probably stopped the halt on the decline yeah it stopped the decline then um i came back and just kept sort of following on with some of the treatment 
they gave me. Yeah, there's a hospital in Tijuana called the International Biocare Hospital. Phenomenal facility. People travel there from the States, treatment for different things. Like, just, yeah, phenomenal facility. It really opened my eyes to some of the th- more things, I suppose, that are available. Then came back and I'd heard a lot of good things about um, people going to Germany to get hypothermia. For okay. So that's where they they induce you into a sleep and then heat your core body temperature up to around 42 degrees right. for about eight hours. And it's a really um, exhaustive procedure. Like it's very, very difficult. Like you come out of it, your, your heart rate, they monitor your heart rate and it's similar to like running a, running a marathon. Like, right. Because it's eight hours and your body yeah. temperature is so high. And the Lyme disease is also reactive to glucose. So it comes out of the cells, so they put glucose through you um, by drip when you're doing it and other antibiotics and stuff to draw the bacteria out mm-hmm. more often. That was probably, I think, the start of starting to fight back. Until then, I'd been going, holding ground, if not just going backwards. So what causes limes? Well, there's differing opinions, you know. Yeah, okay. Many would say tick bite, which probably does. Like, I definitely think that. There's, but there's also a lot of evidence. There's a lot of the um, black forest workers in Germany. They work in the black forest. They get bitten by ticks all the time. Okay. And they've got all the lime, lime antibodies and they're fine. So I think potentially I just had it in my system. Things were okay, but it wasn't until I got really run down after surgeries and pushing my body and stuff that it sort of flared up. It was a common thread and there was a bit of a correlation there between some of the other patients and that that I talked to in, at, at the different clinics. They were quite they were quite extreme and they were successful yeah. young people really pushing really hard yeah. and yeah. they just would crash and burn. Did it help? Did it help once you started to understand? Like, as we talked about before, when you've got illness and you feel like everything's being robbed from you because yeah. of this illness and, yeah. and you feel like that life's being stolen away... Once you start to identify with some other people who are in a, not the same as you, but in a similar vein, well, very, um, very much so. Yeah. It helps. Yeah, it's really refreshing because yeah, a lot of the Lyme issues, I suppose, syndrome, whatever you want to call it. You, I was looking fine, you know. What I mean, I didn't look sick, and and it's heavily neurological, so it's hard to kind of notice. So it's it's you don't really get validated at all. Everyone's like, oh, you look fine. You look fine. Meeting other people and talking yeah. to other people that are going through what you're going through, it's definitely refreshing. Yeah. It definitely helps. And yeah, so it was good having those conversations. And so I went to Germany and came back. And I think I was sort of 24, it's hard to say in hindsight, 25 to 50% better mm-hmm. just after that that treatment. It was really good. It just, it just felt like I woke my body up again. And it really, it killed off a lot of the, the different bacteria and co- like the co-infections and the Borrelia, I think. So, which is the, Borrelia is the Lyme bacteria. Yeah, so I think that was definitely really integral in um, sort of starting my upward trajectory again. And then when I came back from there, I, I talked to a lady who'd done some extended water fasting mm-hmm. to help with her um her Lyme or more back co-infections um and so i've done a lot of done a lot of research into that talked to different doctors and that it was actually like fasting 
clinics. There's one in New South Wales. There's there's a couple in the states where you can go and stay, and then monitor you like medically monitor your fasting. So I talked to a couple of these places, and then I didn't go there, but I done just done a water fast at home, and that was really really beneficial for me coming off the back of the good treatment in Germany. Kind of felt like I had a little bit of momentum, yes. you know, and I yeah, did yeah. not want to take my foot off the gap. I just kind of kept kept my foot down. And so how long was the water fast? I I ended up going about five weeks. I set wow. out to do forty days, but I just didn't quite make it. I was I was good. That's still a huge effort. Yeah, it was, and it, like I was pretty desperate at the time, and I just. I had a little bit of momentum. I so think, what what did your weight get down to after the treatment in Germany? And Oh, I think I was down to about 65 or something. Wow. Played at about 9 kilos. So yeah. Yeah, I lost a bit of weight. But yeah, 30 kilos down. Yeah, but it's like, I don't know, it was it was one of the most profound. It was the hardest, probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. But it was very profound in sort of my healing journey, I think. I think that really just kicks re sort of reset my whole body felt like a lot of my old footy injuries like went away as well like sore okay. joints and stuff were right. just were just like new again right so i actually had to get a um when my left knee um when i was young 19 or 20 i i ground down the the cartilage a lot so i had a bit of problems there but it, Came good after some rehab in it. But a few years after the fast, I had to get an arthroscope. I had got an infection in my knee. Whilst going overseas, actually, to get some top-up treatment, I ended up getting an infection in my knee. I think I, I had an infection in my body. Got an infection in my knee and had to get it cleaned out with arthroscopy just to flush out. But the surgeon said to me, he said, your cartilage is the best cartilage I've ever seen for someone your age. Wow. He said it's like baby cartilage. Wow. And I think that was off the back of the, the fasting. Right. So, yeah, it just felt like my, I felt like a lot of things were new in my body and um, my eyesight didn't come good, which I was really hoping for, like that yeah. my right eye would improve off the back of it, um, which was a bit annoying and it's still not right. Yeah, the, the fast, I did the fast when I got back from Germany and then I kind of maintained from there then went and done some more treatment overseas and then I was sort of back to maybe like 70%, 75% and then I just kept sort of, kept getting like my uh, medication I suppose for lack of a better word, shipped over like vitamin supplements, yep. IVs over here, like a lot of IV vitamin C and different different things and I just gradually started to sort of creep up, up, up. I got a big jump from Germany and Mm-hmm. the fast and then then it was more of a bit of a slow progress yep. back and then that was sort of where it got i got to the point where i was like oh maybe i can play again and and, so, and there was that opportunity to play again so tell me about that for playing in france yeah it was it was really good it was one of the best experiences i've had um and it was it felt like a bit of a bit of a healing year for for me and my wife and our and and the girls uh, just the last what was it eight or yeah, eight years weren't that crash hot. So um, to get a really great opportunity like that. I originally wanted to get back to NRL level. Uh, I went back and I'd done a pre-season with the reserve grade. Obviously missing a lot of foundational training. Um, so it was a bit of a, um adjustment. i done the pre-season, broke my ribs too many times that year. I only played a couple of games because I kept breaking my ribs. 
pretty much the bone density just wasn't used to the contact, yeah. you know, being out so long. And I was hoping to get back into the NRL squad. The Knights had talked to me about kind of a progression plan, you know, play yeah. this year, play some good games, we'll, we'll get you back in. But I just kept, yeah, hurting my ribs. <laughs> just would stop any momentum I had in that direction. There was no NRL, I couldn't get an NRL contract after playing only you know, a handful of games that yeah, year yeah. and continually breaking, no one's going to. And then the the um, France option came up and I'd always wanted to do it. So, yeah, I just jumped They're out. a pretty top-line pretty top line team in France too from from what I've read. Yeah, they were one of the probably... There's four really strong teams, Carcassonne, Les Amiens, uh, Lemieux, and what's the other one? Albi, maybe? Carcassonne, Les Amiens. Yeah, I'll be quite strong. And yeah, uh, got to go there. Great town, great little community. And um, I've done a lot of training in the off-season just to kind of try and strength up, strengthen up my ribs. Didn't have any problems when I got over there. So yeah, it worked. And yeah, we we lived in Lemieux. No, we lived in Cornell, which is a little town just outside of Lemieux. It was a little mm-hmm. school. My daughter was able to go to school there and... We lived in a little village in the south of France for a year. And, Beautiful. Oh, it was stunning. It was in the middle of a vineyard pretty much, like all around was um, mm. the vineyards. And we had a little Danny Wagon, uh, old Parramatta player. He's the assistant coach there in Australia. He had a little garden across the river and we, you know, we grew some stuff. And, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a really good lifestyle. And, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that year. Yeah. yeah. I was looking to stay on. I signed with another... French club, Toulouse, just up the road. Um, but they played in the English competition. Okay. And because I hadn't played NRL in so long, I didn't meet the requirements to play in the English competition, so it made it difficult. And then, yeah, COVID hit, and it just didn't eventuate. And yeah. then we were back. So mm. we sort of left France and left all our stuff there with the understanding we were going back, and then we just never went back. Yeah, it was actually only like a couple of months ago when one of my um, friends come back from France that we actually got some of that gear back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and a lot of it just got given away, but it yeah. to some of the other players and that. So, yeah, no, that was a yeah really great experience. So, do you think football as a career is over for you now? Is there any aspects of it that you could still explore? I'm not sure. I, I would, I have been training uh, a little bit and keeping keeping things moving i suppose are you still involved with fasting uh, do you still keep that as a practice in your life i do intermittent fasting a lot yeah. like I, I think just um doing that fast my whole digestion kind of reset i used to eat five six meals a day now i'm one to two just slide everything down i don't know if i got more efficient at using food or yeah that was probably when i was young and i was trying to put on Put on a bit of size Lots of and stuff, yeah, <laughs> just eating everything. So yeah, so I still fast. Not haven't done an extended one for a while. I done a couple of little three, three day fasts in France. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Like I would definitely look at something if if it popped up. But I'm just I'm at the point kind of where I've got some other things that I'm concentrating on, and I'm not. What did you most learn from that experience in France? I probably learned how busy life is here. They they um. It's 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 normal to us, but they have a different perspective on yes. life. Yes, I love France for that yeah. reason. Yeah, they um, or Europe actually, it, it is one of the best 
ways I think it was described to me is we sometimes live to work a yes. little bit. There's a little bit of our culture, which is fine. Like I think it's good to to work hard, um, but they they work to live, and it's very evident throughout their culture. They they have like a real strong value for le- not leisure. That's probably not the word. They just they just slow things down and they they have a real um intent intent to enjoy enjoy their life enjoy their life and and they like for instance a meal in France it's not you don't just sit down and eat and go it's like it's a it's a it's a full process and you sit and you enjoy the meal and you talk and enjoy the company it's yeah. an event not a it's an event exactly yeah, it's not yeah. um so that just grounds through their whole culture, you know. So, yeah. um, like, if you, if you go to a shop in France, there could be a line out the door around the street, but the shop attendant will still deal with one person till they're finished. So, like, we've waited in shops for like half an hour for the shop attendant to finish with the person they're with, but they won't rush and they won't be like, "Oh yeah, I'll be with you in a sec." They mm. just fully deal. Like they're just fully present and like that's just another example but they yeah they really i suppose put a real value on that and they're intentional towards it like because mm. obviously there's other parts of france like paris and stuff which are probably a lot more like here but more intense yeah yeah so i really liked that side of things um it's obviously a bit harder to do that here because like our lives are busy and, and it's just part of our culture i think we still have a part of us in that that sometimes is like nah let's just try and like be intentional to enjoy and sit and i don't know enjoy the meal i don't know it's probably getting out of us a little bit more but when we got back it was very evident of how yeah how different it was so I had only limited conversations in France. I don't speak French, so yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was it was interesting speaking with the people there. And I, my my takeaway from being in France was here we're often fi- defined by our career. Yes. The conversations I had there, they were more defined by people finding out what they were both interested in, mm. and just in life. That's interesting. And it was a it was a catalyst for when when we started our business. We we've called it Planner Life. Because I know that I know that I know now that people who plan a life they want to live in will be able to bring their business on purpose. But if someone tries to just bring a business on purpose without knowing their why, without knowing this life plan that they want to have and how the business can be used as a vehicle to be able to transport you from where you are now to where you want to be, Mm -hmm. the business doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, you you can design it to be successful. That's not a problem. But the... The potency of that, of that real success there, is when it's backed up by someone trying to plan that life they want to live in. Mm. So when they, so when you find out what you're interested in and what your passions and what your desires and what your loves of life are, yeah. and then your business becomes a vehicle to help that space. Yeah, that's a whole different life. Mm. That's a whole different life. Yeah. So and most people, even when they greet in Australia. They would say, how are you? Yeah. What's your name? What do you do? Yes. It's not who are you. It's, it's what do you do? Yeah. And like is what you do defines you. Mm. So in Europe, it was different. It was, yeah. uh, they more wanted to know who you were, who you are. Yeah. It's, it's, they just have a different way of looking at things. You know? An older culture. Yeah. And, and it, it flows through the way they, like, yeah, they just 
process things, the what, what they um, prioritize, mm. you know. And I at times be like, I can't believe like they would prioritize that, you know. And I think it's just ingrained in like mm. our, our thought processes and our, mm. the way we the lens we look through. They just have mm. a different lens on stuff. They value they things differently. And yeah, I think that was that was really really refreshing. That's a great takeaway. Yeah, I, I think. I think uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book Around the World for Fifty Bucks. I haven't read it. A fantastic book, but he talks about the absolute critical nature of travel, mm. and I'm a firm believer in that. That yeah. it's it's critical to get out there and and see the world and see different cultures and see different peoples because yeah. we live so isolated here, and it's a beautiful beautiful island to be living on. Yeah, this Australia, yeah. it's an amazing place to to live, and we live, I believe, in one of the most beautiful parts of this lovely island but yeah, the reality is you know seeing other cultures seeing other people seeing how other people live mm. it changes you forever yeah it opens your eyes it does it change you it gives you perspective yeah you know it can realign your perspective it's, yeah. yeah it's really powerful it was one of the best years of my life i think that's one uh, especially after having rough years before that yeah getting to take my um two daughters and mm. wife over there was uh, mm. pretty special yeah. yeah. So what are you doing with yourself now, right? Where Where's life up to at this point in time? So when I got back from France, I have a good family friend who originally, sorry, I'll backtrack a bit, originally before um, I went back to playing, I worked in financial planning for okay. a year or so. And so I had a little bit of a foundation there and finance definitely still interests me and um, I had a good family friend that came back from New York during COVID and here and runs an investment fund. Mm -hmm. And so he took me under his wing and just taught me everything. And that's kind of been the last probably two, three years. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I work um, prop, I work for a prop, prop trading company mm -hmm. uh, and do that in the evenings. And I've also got an NDIS business, which um, is just ticking away and got some really, really great clients and really great guys are hanging out with there so it's a it's i don't know they're probably quite very different industries but yeah i'm, I'm definitely on pursuing the trading and that side of things and yeah enjoying i feel like the ndis work it can be really impactful and i enjoy that as well so that's kind of where i'm at at the moment yeah is there a dream that you still have percolating inside of you that that's kind of bursting to get out in some way shape or form um i always wanted like always wanted to be a trader or okay. along those lines um i thought after football i started an economics degree when i was playing but when i was sick it just seemed really out of reach so and to get the opportunity with family friend was a really great opportunity off the disappointment of not getting back to go getting to go back to france yeah. it was mm. it was um yeah something that i think is potentially really impactful for my future so i'm um I think that's probably my main focus and dream for the moment. Yeah, I'm just still, I suppose, taking it slow and just trying to rebuild from, um, as a young guy, getting, uh, I suppose, sick at that point in your life, that 20 to 30s, like, it's kind of a really crucial time to a degree, you know, you're building and you, you sort, it's sort of the start of your working life, so I'm just sort of taking it slow, trying to rebuild from that, and I think, yeah, I think that's probably my uh, hope for the future that I can um, keep pursuing that. And yeah, I, I don't know what 
if, if there'll be another footy opportunity. I haven't played for a couple of years now, so we'll see what happens. But do still kind of would like to maybe play one more year, but it's got to be the right opportunity. And I've got two girls now and mm. other probably priorities, to be honest. You know, it's not um, first priority. So. A different stage of life. Yeah, definitely. And you're transitioning mm. into that. So um, mm. you just have to prioritise other things, I think. So. Well, I hundred percent know the rest of your life is the best of your life, yeah. And that's not definitely. a cliche. The reality is, we live life forwards. It's linear, yeah. And we we invent what's next, yeah. And it's exciting. And the the beauty of imagination is the first place where we place the seeds, where we see the fruit for the rest of our life come from. And, mm-hmm. and there will be many times across the rest of our life still that you'll reinvent life. Yeah, I think that's been that's been the challenge. I think on the on the back end of getting getting sick young and kind of thinking I had probably a few more years to play and mm. stuff like that was the sort of going, okay, what what now, you know? Mm. Especially when my brain wasn't working real good and mm. wasn't feeling good. It was quite daunting. Mm. Um, so mm. to just starting to be take a few little steps in the right direction now is encouraging. Yeah. So do you feel like the Lyme's disease and the hold that had on your life, do you feel that's conquered now? Um, not, not totally, to be honest. I still have to keep a real close eye on things and right. I just find I'm not as uh, robust as I used to be like if I'm not on top of things I just start to feel it mm-hmm. a lot quicker and I'm um, like I still can't see out of my right eye very well that is limiting you know mm. it's harder to read it's hard it's just a little bit harder and mm. little things so I still I, I still don't think my nervous system's 100% I think it's taken massive grounds in, but I, if I compare it before i just noticed some little things which mm. are just yeah i'm just like that's not 100 you know there's something going on there but i'm i suppose i'm approaching as i want to get back to 100 and i'll keep ticking every box that i can in pursuit of that um hopefully i get there. so i don't i probably i don't think that i'll fully conquer it and i'll i'm not probably i still keep a pretty close check on it just mm. trying to eat well and Tick all, all the right boxes in that, I suppose, area to both keep keep me well and keep me moving forward as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to try and keep ironing out those little things that still bother me a little bit. Well, I'm excited to see that, that future unfold for you, Ryan, and, and, yeah. and how it progresses. And there's a question I ask everyone at yeah. the end of uh, our I Decided interviews, and I know this is a very, very, very long way off in the future for you, but I ask... I ask people, one day your life is going to be reduced to a sentence, maybe a paragraph. Oh. And what would you like that sentence or paragraph to say about the life of Ryan Stig? It's an interesting concept to think that, and that's true. That's one day. That's how it will be, I suppose. I never gave up. You know what I mean? I kept um, kept fighting through a diff- difficult um, situation. I never gave up. You know, I think that's really important just to... That and I, I would, I would like to say, is that I suppose, I had the intent to live for uh, a legacy for my children's children. You know, like that verse in the Bible that says we leave an inheritance to our children's children. Not, and I, I don't think, I don't know in the exact context, but I, I don't think that just means financially. I think it's so much more than yes. that. You know, um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, family relationships you yeah. Know, all that. yeah I, I would like it to say something that I, I live with an intent to leave a legacy 
to that degree. So. Very few people remember how much they were given. In, in a financial perspective, most remember how much they were, how much they were forgiven, how much they were given, and how yeah. much they were loved irrationally and unconditionally. They're the key things that people take into the future. And I think if we get those qualities right in a relationship that's to our children's children, to our grandchildren. Yeah, I think I think something along those lines would yeah. be, would be nice. Yeah. I often tease my kids. I'll just tell them, "You get nothing. That's it. It's it's your children's children. So the grandkids get everything." Yeah, that's it. That's, that's all right. Yeah, so no, that's good. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. And what advice, just in closing, what advice would you give to that young person mm. who's kind of had some setbacks and yeah. some discouragement and disappointment as they as they pursue a professional career in sport? What advice would you give them? Well, I think I had some setbacks when I was younger. I probably didn't get to um, sort of go as quickly as I would have liked. I think you just, you got to be confident in your own ability. And if you're confident in your own, own ability, just keep refining and use every trot. Like it is cliche, but you do need to use the setbacks to make you better. And if you can do that, you'll probably get there in the end. You know, it's just... And it probably goes to where you just, you just don't give up, keep moving forward with it. And I think when you're young, I look back now and see how impatient I was. Um, I had so much time ahead of me, but it had to be now. I think, and that's probably hard, hard to hear as a young person. But yeah, I think I was just, I was in a rush. I was very eager to make things happen now. But in reality, there's time. And I, I do get that there is time span on on sport you, you do have a limited amount of time but yeah looking back i think i had the ability to be more patient and and probably look upon those setbacks as like if this can make me better if like how can i refine from here and get better i think that's something that there's value in yeah yeah refining is a good word isn't it yeah yeah i yeah. like it it's yeah. that constant evaluation and amelioration so it's the you know it's data telling a story yeah. And then what have I got to do to change the story? Definitely. And yep. you need to have a real growth mindset with sport and you need to have thick skin and mm. you need to be um, analyse yourself in a, in ways where you're like, oh, I played bad today or I did mm. this bad today and, okay, well, I've got to get better today or mm. I'm not going to cut it, you know, and that's mm. sort of just inherent with the environment. So. Mm. Yeah, just using using the setbacks to refine you and keep mm. stacking good days upon good days upon good days and you get better and, mm. yeah, if you're young, there's time. There is. Well, it's been uh, great to have a conversation together. Thank you. Thanks for the wisdom you've shared and, and thanks for the life you've lived and, and, and how many people you've encouraged and, and supported over the years and journeyed with who have suffered similar things to you or or younger people that you have mentored and invested into their life to help them be overcomers. So, and thanks for the excitement that you brought into it. They'll only be brief into the, the Newcastle Knights. It was, it was very exciting for us to watch you enjoying that part of your life, contributed to this city, uh, to this region. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and, and yeah, listening to a bit of my story.